Uh, So we're in John chapter 9 today. If you have a Bible, uh, we'll start at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How could a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone, if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he was a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Well, a few years ago, uh, my wife Stephanie and I went to Florida. And it was the last day before we were about to come home. We were coming home the next day. 
And so we saved uh, one of the highlights of the trip for the last day. And so we were going to go on this boat ride to this uninhabited island, and uh, we just went there for about three or four hours. And it was, what was nice about it is because it was uninhabited, there were no hotels, people could camp there, but basically the only people on the island were the people who were on the boat with us. You know, and so you'd have you know, you know, yards and yards of beach with just barely any people, and it was just kind of quiet and peaceful, and it was really one of the highlights of our trip. We just had a great time. I went and found you know, dozens of sand dollars and uh, just had a great time. We brought a picnic lunch. There's nothing to buy on the island. So we're there about four hours, then we start heading home, and we were hungry by that point. You know, we've been out all day, you know, we'd been trying to drink, put sunscreen on, but we're starting to get hungry. Uh, and so we're headed back towards the hotel, and then we go to a restaurant to get something to eat. And uh, we go and sit down in the booth, and all of a sudden, it seemed, out of the blue, I started getting really cold. And it's, you know, really hot outside. It's like 85 outside. I mean, a little bit cooler inside, but I'm just, I'm really cold. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I, I don't feel so good. So I ordered some uh, cheese sticks, and I could only eat like two or three cheese sticks, and that was like really trying to eat. Now, I really had to get those two or three cheese sticks down. I just felt awful. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what is wrong with me? I mean, I had been sick before in the past, you know, dozens of times, but I had never come to a place where I was like, I'm doing great one moment, and the next moment I feel like I'm going to die. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, did I get dehydrated? Do I just need something to eat? Did I get stung by something in the water that I didn't realize, that I didn't know about? So we go back to the hotel, and uh, we were supposed to pack up to go home. And I said to Stephanie, I was like, I don't think I can help you. And I just kind of passed out on the bed. And the most concerning part about it was I didn't know what was going on. I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? It turned out that I got sun poisoning, and when I got home, I had these big uh, sun, sun blisters. But I didn't even think about that because I had sunscreen on the whole time. Apparently, that didn't work. But if I would have known what was wrong, it wouldn't have been as concerning. But the fact that I was doing fine one moment, and the next moment I felt like I was going to die, was concerning to me. It's troubling when the world doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense to us if, you know, a good person has good things happen to them. It makes sense to us if a bad person has bad things happen to them. And that was kind of the thinking in the ancient world with the ancient Jews. They thought if you're a good, righteous person, then things will go well with you. And if you have bad things happen to you, it shows that you're a sinner. I mean, that kind of makes sense to us. That's kind of a cause effect. Do what's right, things will go well. Do what's wrong, things won't go so well. And there's even some Christian denominations who uh, teach that today. That teach if you're, if you're suffering, if you're experiencing some struggle, it means that you're sinning. You've got to figure out that secret sin that you're doing, and then once you figure that out, then everything will be okay. When I was in some seminary, I had some struggles with anxiety. I remember trying to get to the root of, of, of what I was experiencing. I remember reading some uh, books and hearing some people tell me, basically, you must have some secret sin. There must be something beneath the surface. And I looked and looked to try to find what is that sin that I'm holding on to that's causing me to have anxiety. And of course, if you look hard enough, you could, we can all find sin in our lives. But I don't 
believe for a moment that was the root cause of what was happening to me. Sometimes good people have bad things happen to them. Sometimes bad people have good things happen to them. And that doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to people in the ancient world. And the Jews thought if a good thing happens to you, then you must be a good person. If a bad thing happens to you, you must be a bad person. And then they encounter this situation that kind of tests their understanding. It's a man who's born blind. And so there's kind of a debate. It's like, is this man, has this man sinned or was it his parents? Like, what is the cause of this man's blindness? He was born blind. And I think the answer that they would probably uh, fall into is they would probably say, well, it's the parents who sinned. Now, in our culture, we would never think that because we live in an individualistic culture. We think, you know, uh, we're responsible for our own actions. But for uh, a parent to their sin to cause uh, problems in, in a child's life, we, th we don't think that is fair. But in the ancient Jewish world, when they thought about responsibility, they thought of it in corporate terms. And so it wouldn't have been a stretch for them to think the parents sinned, and so their son is experiencing the consequence of their parents' sin. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him, so which is it? Is it the parents or him? That sinned. And Jesus shocks them when he says, Neither. It's neither the parents nor him who have sinned. And he says, It is not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus refutes this idea that good people automatically have good things happen to them and bad people have uh, bad things happen to them. And then he, Jesus makes a statement that's quite interesting. Jesus says this. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says to his disciples, it's light, it's day, and as long as it's light and as long as it's day, we have to do the works of the Father. Now what is Jesus talking about here? I think in one sense he's talking about the fact that he's not going to be long upon this earth. Jesus knows that his time is short and he has to uh, do a number of things before he goes to the cross and dies on the cross, rises again, and then goes into heaven. So I think that's one sense in which he's talking about, but I think there's something deeper that maybe he's talking about. I think Jesus is talking about the time when maybe it's too late to repent. From the time that Jesus came into the earth and proclaimed the gospel, there were men and women, boys and girls, who came to faith in Christ, who turned from their sins and entered into the kingdom of God. And so from the day that Jesus entered into the world, it was the time of light. It was the time when anyone who desires can come to Christ. And that continues up to this day. The gospel is proclaimed and anyone who wants to believe in Christ can come and believe in Christ. But one day that will change, one day that will turn to darkness, and one day it will be too late. There will be no chance to repent. So how does that relate to this man born blind? I think that maybe Jesus is communicating that in God's sovereign plans of, of salvation, there's a lot of work to be done, and so sometimes God allows certain things to happen, maybe that he doesn't in his heart desire to happen, or wouldn't want to happen, but he allows things to happen to further his mission. There's an uh, old ship called the SMS Queen Mary. And the SMS Queen Mary 
Uh, it was a World War II era ship, and it's now a hotel in Long Beach, California, and it's kind of attached to the shore, um, and you could actually stay uh, on that ship, and uh, they used to offer like tours and stuff like that. What's interesting about the Queen Mary is that it served two purposes during World War II. Uh, during peacetime, it was a cruise ship. During wartime, it was a troop transport ship. And what's interesting is they used to have an exhibit where they kind of showed the, the different ways that the ship was set up uh, when it was either wartime or when it was peacetime. In, in peacetime, they had these beautiful staterooms, spacious, you know, nice, nicely decorated, beautiful art on the walls. They had these grand ballrooms. They had all of this beautiful silverware and china, very spacious, beautiful ship. But then when it was wartime, all of that changed. When it was wartime, the capacity went from 3,000 people for the ship to 15,000 people for the ship. The staterooms were just covered with bunk beds. Sometimes they were, they were piled up eight feet uh, or eight, eight levels high, these bunk beds. And if you actually look on, uh, do a search of the Queen Mary, you'll probably see these troops and you'll see just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these sailors uh, on the deck of the ship. I don't even know how they could fit so many people on the ship. The beautiful china was replaced by this kind of utilitarian metal trays where they would serve the people. And the reason is, of course, when it's peacetime, it serves as a cruise ship. And what is the goal? The goal is the passenger's comfort. The goal is that they would be satisfied that they would want to come back again. But what's the goal when it's wartime? The goal is to win the war. War changes everything. And in coming to the earth, Jesus was waging war on the forces of darkness. And when he died on the cross and rose again from the grave, he defeated sin and darkness. And he enlisted his disciples to be soldiers of the cross, to share the good news that sin, death, and the grave have been conquered. And when we come to follow Jesus, he enlists us as soldiers, not as passengers. When we come to Christ, there's a mission to be accomplished. And in any war, there is hardship. In any war, there is suffering. But it's all for the sake of winning the war. And we know as Christians that the war already, in a sense, has been won. Jesus has defeated sin and darkness. But the war hasn't been completed yet. We're still in the midst of the battle. And in God's sovereign purposes, sometimes he allows us to suffer. He allows us to go through times of questioning, perplexing, because he has a mission. And I think the problem is that many of us as Christians, we get this idea that we're passengers rather than soldiers. We get this idea that God saves us, he rescues us from the dominion of darkness, and then we just kind of float through life. Then our goal is just enjoying our relationship with God and, and, and being comforted. But God has a mission for each and every one of us. The fact that we're here, God could take us to heaven right away. He could choose to bring us to heaven. I mean, what are we doing here? He has a mission for us. It doesn't matter who you are, no matter what your situation is. If you're on this planet, God has a reason for you being here. And I think that this story and this teaching of Jesus 
reminds us of something. And I think suffering, it points us or it reminds us of the fact that there's an urgent mission. It points us to the urgency of the mission. Think about it this way. Think about, say, two people who are trying to diet. And the first person uh, says, well, I'm going to try to eat healthier, and uh, I'm going to eat six pieces of pizza instead of eight pieces of pizza. And instead of getting an extra, extra biggie-sized soda, I'm going to just get an extra large soda. And once in a while, maybe once a week, I'm going to eat a vegetable. Maybe once in a while, I'll walk around the block. Wouldn't it be nice if a diet like that worked? But then you have another person, they go to the doctor. The doctor says, your cholesterol is high. You have heart disease. You need to make some changes, and you need to make some changes quick. And that person starts a diet. That person counts every calorie that he or she eats. That person eats almost all vegetables and fruits, cuts out any kind of sugar or soda, exercises vigorously. Which person has more of an urgency? It's the person that is suffering. The person who deprives themselves, the person whose changes, that person communicates an urgency. If the God of the universe, and now we think about God, and God loves his children so much. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could spend forever with him. If he allows suffering in our lives, he must have a good reason for it. There must be a mission that is so urgent, a purpose that is so deep that he allows his children to suffer. Jesus demonstrates in his own life the urgency of the mission as it's described in Mark chapter 15. It says, And they clothed him, Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for him to decide what each should take. Jesus' suffering points to the urgency of his mission. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so when we experience pain, it's something it's hard to, to ignore. It's something that grabs our attention. It reminds us that we're mere mortals, and it reminds us that the time is short and the mission is urgent. There are people all around us who are headed for an eternity separated from God. And God has us, each and every one of us here, for a reason, for a purpose. Suffering reminds us of the urgency of the mission. That's the first point, I think, that this passage shows us. But let's look a little bit further at what the mission is that Jesus accomplishes in this passage. 
Jesus grabs some dirt from the ground and then he spits on the dirt and makes these little spitballs and puts them in this man's eye. It's not 100% clear why he does this. Uh, but he does this and then he calls for this man to go to the pool of Siloam and him, uh, this man in faith goes to the pool, washes his eyes and then he can see. Now it was generally believed in the ancient world that human excrement like blood, saliva, etc. would make a person unclean. But there was another teaching that in the hands of the right person, in the hands of someone very powerful who was authorized, those same things could also be cleansing. Uh, cultural anthropologist Mary Douglas puts it this way, blood and saliva pollute, but in the right context, blood cleanses and saliva cures. And so if this is the case, Jesus is communica communicating something very important, and that is whatever Jesus touches, he makes clean. And so this man is healed. He's healed physically, but we also see he's healed spiritually. And what I find interesting about this passage is that the Pharisees, John often refers to them as just the Jews in general, but most of the time I think he's talking about the Pharisees. They're so interested in this miracle. And what's so interesting about that is that uh, there had been many other miracles that were performed by Jesus up to this point. There weren't, you know, this wasn't the first miracle. I don't know if it was the fact of the permanence of it, that this man had always been blind and they knew who he was. Um, I'm not sure exactly why they're so interested, but they're so interested in this miracle. And they find this man and they're, first they're questioning, was this really the person who was blind? Some of them are like, well, yeah, it, it, that's the man. And other people are like, uh, no, it just looks like him. And they come and they interrogate, that, interrogate this man and are like, were you blind? Yes, I was blind. Can you see? Yes, I can see. How can that be? Well, Jesus changed me. Jesus opened my eyes. And then they go even deeper. They go to this man's parents. They want even more proof. And they're like, is this your son? Was he born blind? Yes. Well, how can he see if he was born blind? Well, that's kind of the point. It's a miracle. So they don't want to get involved, so they send, uh, send the Pharisees back to this man again. And he gets a little bit more bold in his witness. And look at what it says again in verses 30 to 33. He says, Why, this is an amazing thing. You did not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. After this, the man is cast out from the temple because of his witness. And he encounters Jesus. And Jesus tells him who he is. And this man puts his faith and trust in Jesus. And he encounters not just a physical transformation, but a spiritual transformation. And what's remarkable about this passage is that this man becomes this powerful witness for Jesus. And he becomes a witness for Jesus because of his greatest weakness. See, God often uses our greatest weakness or our greatest suffering to be our greatest blessing. Why is this man such a great witness? It's not because he's a great speaker. It's not because he kept the law so well. It was because he was blind, and now he could see. Because God healed him. God changed him. Several years ago, 
uh, during the year that uh, Jimmy Carter was elected president, um, there were a few people that were invited to give uh, short speeches, five-minute speeches at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, so there was 17,000 people at this convention, and one of them was Jimmy Carter. One of them was Billy Graham, the most famous evangelist in the 20th century, had spoken to thousands upon thousands of people. And the third person was a truck driver. So Billy Graham gets up and he gives his speech, you know, rousing speech. And then this truck driver is supposed to come next. He's never given a speech in his life. He's terrified. He admitted, I don't think, he said this, I don't think I can live through it. I just can't do it. I mean, imagine following up Billy Graham with a speech. So he gets up to the podium, maybe even shaking. I'm not sure. They bring him some water, and he just starts mumbling. And he says, I, I was always a drunk. I didn't have any friends. The only people I knew were men like me who hung around in bars in the town where I lived. He went on to describe how he met Jesus and how Jesus changed him. And then he described how he went back to the bar rooms where he was comfortable hanging out. And he started sharing Jesus with the people. At first, people were hesitant. At first, the bartender uh, said, this, is a, this isn't a good thing. You're drawing away business. Encouraged him to stay away, but he was persistent. And he kept sharing his faith. He says, at first, they treated me like a joke, but I kept, kept up with the questions. And when I couldn't answer one, I went and got the answer and came back with it. He said, 14 of my friends became Christians. He bumbled through the speech, but that speech changed the people who were there. Jimmy Carter writes this. He said, the truck driver's speech, of course, was the highlight of the convention. He said, I don't believe anyone who was there will ever forget that five-minute fumbling statement or remember what I or even Billy Graham had to say. God often uses our greatest weaknesses to be the greatest blessings. I mean, he can use our strengths too, and he often does. But the thing is, when God uses our strengths, I mean, we can kind of take credit for it. Or at least someone from the outside, well, that person is good at this, that person does this, that person had this background, of course they're going to be like that. That makes sense. But when God uses our weaknesses, He's the only one who gets the credit. When we've hit rock bottom and God brings us up out of the miry pit and sets our feet on solid ground, there's only one who could get glory from that, and that is Jesus. And so God uses our greatest weaknesses for His glory. God can use our addiction to alcohol or drugs or pornography to point people to Jesus. God could use our marriage troubles to point people to Jesus. God can use our struggles with anxiety to point people to Jesus. God meets us at our point of weakness and when he brings us out of that place of darkness and sets our feet on solid ground, the world takes notice because there's only one who could do that and that is Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says this, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think one of my greatest weaknesses in high school and college uh, was communication. I had two friends, and those were basically the only people that I talked to at all. And when I say that, I'm, I'm not really exaggerating much. I wouldn't even often say hello to a lot of other people. I would just talk to those two friends. And then God said, I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to call you to be a pastor. And you're going to speak up in front of people each week. I remember, I've told this story before, but I, I remember one of the first times I spoke, uh, one of the first messages I gave, I was on a missions trip, and I barely said anything the whole trip. Really quiet, you know, I was, you know, just kind of, you know, to the, to the side, didn't hardly say anything. And then I got up to give the salvation message, and everyone was amazed at the message. It wasn't because it was a great message, they were amazed that I could speak. And I look back at that, and, you know, God uses our weaknesses. Even today, I'm not necessarily the best communicator. You can ask my wife that. Sometimes I will say things that don't make sense or say, not communicate certain things. But she reminds me, it's like when you go up to preach, you're not the same person. That's not the same person. God uses our weaknesses, and he uses them for his glory. And he gets all the glory because it's not anything that we could do. It's him bringing us up, him strengthening us. And so I ask you, what are you struggling with today? What is your weakness? What are you struggling with? Maybe tomorrow God is going to use that biggest struggle that you have today to be the greatest blessing to those around you. There's an old story of farmers in southern Alabama, and uh, they were cotton farmers. And each year they just planted the same thing, cotton. One year there was this great pest called bull weevil that came through and just decimated all of their crops. Some of them had to mortgage their farms, take out loans. They figured, well, next year we'll have to try to recoup the loss. Next year came along and they planted cotton again. Once again, these bull weevils came, destroyed all of their crops. Many of the farms were forced to close, but there were some that survived. And a few of the farms that survived decided that they were going to try something different the third year. They decided they were going to try planting peanuts. Now, it was kind of a new thing back then. You know, now we have peanuts everywhere. But it was kind of a new thing back then, and so they planted these peanuts and they found that these peanuts had this, you know, were, were resistant to these bugs. And they grew exponentially. And they were not able, that not only were they able to pay off their debts with the peanuts that they grew, but they were also able to become prosperous. It was said that after that, they decided they were going to use some of their wealth to erect an, a monument in the town. And that monument was a statue of a bull weevil. Because they said, if it wasn't for the bull weevil, they would have never discovered the peanuts. There's things in our life today who, that are perplexing. None of us like to suffer. None of us like to go through difficult times. But I wonder if we get to heaven, 
and we see God's perspective, it'll be like those farmers. We'll see that hardship, see that weakness, and we'll see why God allowed those things to happen. And maybe we'll even rejoice in those things. Rejoice that God used even those places of darkness, even those difficulties for his mission. Suffering points us to the urgency of the mission. And God often uses our greatest suffering to become our greatest blessing. We don't always understand why God does what he does, but we trust him. We trust that he knows what he's doing. He works all things for our good and for his glory. The mission is urgent. God has a plan for each and every one of us. I'd like to close with a quote from Amy Carmichael, who is an Irish missionary to India. She said this, We will have eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We trust as your children that when you allow us to go through the valley of the shadow of death, you have a purpose. That our suffering points to a mission that is urgent. That there is a world of darkness There are people all around us who are headed for an eternity separated from you. And that you have a mission, a rescue mission, and sometimes that involves suffering. Sometimes that involves using our weaknesses. But we also believe through faith that you can use our greatest weaknesses for your glory to be a blessing to those around us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's struggling today struggling with addiction, struggling with pain, struggling with brokenness in their marriage, struggling with anxiety. God, no matter what we're dealing with, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust that you can bring us out of those things, that you can set our feet on a solid ground and you can use those things for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.